0: It goes deep
1: into center field, way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the Toy Cannon, now has 76 runs batted in of the year. What a shot.
2: Hey there, everybody, and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Ragipothe.
1: I'm Jacob Wessels. And
0: I am Matthew Wilson.
2: And we are so excited to present you with a podcast that we think is going to shed some light on people and stories, figures, everything throughout sports, and maybe even a little more that we hope that you don't know or that you haven't heard of or that you badly need to take a second look at. This whole project was inspired by Jimmy the Toy Cannon Win, who unfortunately passed away recently, but we're going to try to preserve his memory, as well as A host of other people anyone else that we talk about on this podcast
0: hairston swinging away sends it out towards deep left field back goes matt holiday that ball is up and that ball is gone a two-run home run for scott hairston has propelled the san diego padres to an eight to six lead here in the 13th inning
1: So basically every single episode, we're going to each pick a player or a topic or kind of a theme, but usually players, and we're going to kind of bring them to light and and discuss kind of the intricacies of them and, and the intrigue about them. And at the end, we're going to have a discussion and a vote as to whether these players are worthy of being included in the overall canon that we're creating here. And so for my first choice, it seemed only natural to me to bring one of baseball's all time greats, Scott Hairston. Now, Scott Hairston, for those of you who might be unfamiliar, was a major leaguer from 2004 to 2014, so he spent a decade in the show. But he was never really a full-time starter. He was only a full-time starter in about two or three seasons. And he spent his career playing for five different teams, and his listed positions are outfielder, pinch hitter, and second baseman. And it's always good when you get a player on Baseball Reference and one of their positions listed is pinch hitter but one of the most important or special things about Scott Hairston is that he comes from one of baseball's greatest families. And I think when people think about baseball families, they tend to think about baseball families where some of the players are great. And the thing about the Hairston family is no player in the Hairston family has more than like 10 career war, but they have five different major leaguers in their family and three generations of major leaguers. Only one, one of only four families to have three generations of major league players. And so his granddad was Sam Hairston who was kind of a Negro League legend who got four at-bats with the Chicago White Sox. And then his son was John Hairston, who kept the family tradition of getting four games in Chicago alive by playing four games for the Chicago Cubs. And so across their eight games in the Windy City, they became the first black father-son duo to play in the major leagues. And then the other son of Sam Hairston is Jerry Hairston. And so Jerry Hairston played for for quite a while. It's kind of a regular. And then his oldest son, Jerry Hairston Jr., is brothers with Scott Hairston. The Hairston we are talking about, the youngest Hairston who has made the major leagues thus far. From 1945 to 2014, there has always been a Hairston playing professional baseball. And so they have really They've been around forever. Now, I mean, a brief bit of trivia. I did mention that there are four three generation MLB families. There's the Bells, Gus Bell, Buddy Bell, David Bell, and Mike Bell. The Colemans, two Joel Colemans, and then a Casey Coleman who played from 2010 to 2014. And I've never heard of them. But the most famous is the Boons Ray Boone, Bob Boone, and then Brett and Aaron Boone.
2: The Bells. That's the David Bell that played third for the Phillies and manages the Reds. I believe so. And that's Buddy Bell that also, as an infielder for the Indians. He was pretty good. He could be. Yeah,
1: I mean, yeah. There, there's certainly there's certainly some talent to be thrown around in these baseball families. But but the Hairstons yeah. have have some some special things going on with them. But that's that's not how I got to Scott Hairston in the first place. I you know I wasn't thinking oh great baseball family and it's certainly cool. Jerry Hairston Jr. put it this way. He said we're not the Griffies, we're not the Bonds, we're never superstars, but we're guys that loved the game of baseball and worked extremely hard at our craft. And that really resonates with me. I you know, I think it's just a cool story of, of a whole family who loved baseball. And they just keep passing it down from generation to generation. But as I said, that's not not why we're talking about Scott Harrison. I saw something on Twitter that reminded me of the fact that Gleyber Torres hit 13 out of his 38 home runs last season against the Baltimore Orioles. And that's just one of the craziest stats ever to me. The fact that he was literally the greatest hitter in baseball against the Orioles and and he was, he was kind of a, an, a, an average hitter against everybody else, or slightly above average. But it right. kind of vaulted him into the MVP conversation, just hitting against one team. So that kind of begs the question for me, what's the highest percentage of someone's season home run total they've hit against a single team? You know, who, who has just dominated a team so much that it's basically just made up their entire season's worth of performance? And so I did a search on the Baseball Reference Play Index, and I looked to see if there was anyone who had a double digit home run season where over half of their home runs came against one team. And in the divisional era, I have found only one person who did that. And that is Scott Hairston's 2007 season. Scott Hairston spent 2007 kind of split between two teams he was traded a little bit before the deadline to the Padres from the Diamondbacks. and route to the Padres, he had already homered one time against the San Francisco Giants. And so he homered in April against the Giants. It was a game-winning home run against the Giants. And, and so that was cool, but it was not the special thing. Because in 2007, right when he got traded to the Padres, the first series the Padres were playing was against the Giants. Scott Hairston entered the game, and he proceeded to immediately hit a three-run game-tying home run. So he has now had two games against the Giants all season. His first game, he had a three-run home run. In his second game, he had a game-tying home run in the ninth inning. He sends the game to extra innings, and two innings later, Scott Hairston, lo and behold, hits the game-winning home run. And so Scott Hairston now has three home runs. The very next day, Scott Hairston played so well the day before he earns himself the start, and Scott Hairston's first at-bat in the next game... Scott Hairston hits a home run against the Giants. Of course. So Scott Hairston has now hit four home runs.
2: Is this in San Francisco? I don't this lie. is
1: in San Diego. He has hit these home runs. He has hit all of these home runs at home. So it's not really the ballpark. It's just Scott Hairston. And so Scott Hairston, in this little stretch here for the Padres, his first two games in the Padre uniform, becomes just the seventh Padre ever to hit three consecutive home runs and three consecutive at-bats. It did not make the news the next day. And the reason it did not make the news the next day is because in that very game that Scott Hairston hit his third straight home run, Barry Bonds hit his 755th home run. (laughs) And so so Scott Hairston overshadowed slightly by a slightly more impressive home run accomplishment. That's the point of this exercise. We're bringing Scott Hairston's accomplishments to light. As the season kind of plays out, Scott Hairston continues to dominate the Giants. He goes on to hit three more home runs outside of the four that we've just discussed, and that's over the course of a few months. So in 2007, Scott Hairston hit seven home runs in 17 games against the San Francisco Giants, and he hit four homers in 90 games against everybody else. Scott Hairston continued to destroy the Giants for the rest of the time in in a Padres uniform. Scott Hairston was a Padre from 2007 to 2009. And Scott Hairston, when he left the Padres, had hit 20% of his career home runs and 25% of his career RBIs came against the San Francisco Giants. One team accounted for basically a quarter of all of his counting statistics. So Scott Hairston kind of generated a reputation amongst Giants fans as just being one of the biggest giant killers of all time. And it because it wasn't just the fact that he was constantly hitting home runs against the Giants. It was the fact that he was constantly hitting like game winning or game tying home runs against the Giants. As I mentioned before, he hit the go ahead home run in the first game against the Giants. He hit the game tying and the walk off home runs. He proceeded to hit a three-run home run in 2009 that put them up by one in the eighth inning. He proceeded to hit a go-ahead home run in another game in 2012 against the Giants. And so just every single hit against the Giants that he seems to get seems to be a game-winning hit. Beautiful quote from Mr. Grant Brisby, who said, And oh yes, Scott Hairston, if a jock itch could sleep with your wife, there might be something found in nature that could compete with Scott Hairston. Like, you come home, throw your keys on the coffee table, you hear a noise, and you creep toward the bedroom door, push it open, and oh God, Jock Itch is sleeping with my wife. That's Scott Hairston. And so that's kind of the experience that Giants fans have had with Scott Hairston for the longest time. And so when Scott Hairston left the Padres, Giants fans could probably breathe a sigh of relief, knowing that his reign of terror was over. Scott Hairston kind of bounced around baseball for a little bit. He ended up finding his way to the New York Mets. That was the next place where he was really able to stick. And Scott Hairston, when he sinks his teeth into a division, he's like, I'm going to find that one team that I'm just going to ruin. And for the Scott Hairston in the National League East, that was the Philadelphia Phillies. Similar to his career against the Giants. From 2008 to 2013, he had the best OPS against the Phillies, second only to Ryan Braun. He had a 7.46 OPS against all of baseball and a 10.21 OPS against the Philadelphia Phillies. And in the 11 games he played against the Phillies in 2012, he hit five home runs and hit 3.24. So Scott Hairston just completely transitioned to absolutely destroying the Phillies. And as Scott Hairston tends to do when he starts destroying you over and over and over again, he tends to get on people's nerves, which leads me to one of the single greatest moments of all time to be captured on sports radio. And Torres goes down on strikes. So one run in the inning on the Homer by Harrison, two hits, and there's one man left. As we go to the fifth here in New York, it's one-nothing mess. Little makeup. Somebody
2: figure out how to f-
1: get Scott Harrison out. He yeah. stinks. Jesus Christ <laughs> And so for those of you who are unfamiliar, that is Philadelphia Phillies radio broadcaster, Scott Fransky, And he seems to be a little bit frustrated with Scott Harrison. By the time he ended his career, 26 of his 106 career home runs came against either the Philadelphia Phillies or the Giants. And so that's just under 25% of his career home runs. And similarly, just under 25% of his career RBIs came against the Phillies and Giants. And so this is just kind of the story of a player who basically sucked with the exception of when he played two teams who he must have really hated because against those two teams, he was one of the greatest hitters of all time. And so that is why I believe that Scott Hairston should be inducted into the toy cannon cannon because of his absolute destruction of the Phillies and Giants. He is the only person ever to have a double-digit home run season where over half of his home runs came against one team.
2: The thing I love about the Scott Hairston thing is that, like, we all have a Scott Hairston in our lives. Anyone that's played any sort of sport, whether it's like intramural sports or, you know, on the playground or high school or travel or anything like that, there's always one guy that you swear to God just sucks. Like, you're like, how is this guy getting the better of me? He's awful.
1: And the Scott Hairston story is a universal story in that way. And I think every team has their own Scott Hairston. It's just so unusual that Scott Hairston is Scott Hairston for two different teams.
0: Yeah, I think one of the craziest things is that those two teams that had like amazing pitching staffs. Like that was Lindsey Combs yeah. prime years, Matt Kane. I don't know if Zito was doing well by then, but then the Phillies had Hamels and Lee and Halliday came along. So
1: it's like not against some scrubs, it seems like. Matt Kane hates Scott Hairston. There was like a press conference that I found where basically Matt Kane in, 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 um, in 2007, when Scott Hairston kept hitting those game winning home runs against the Giants Three of them came, and Matt Kane starts, and like all three of them prevented him from getting the win. And so he was like, "I he was like, I have 14 wins, but I have 17 wins if it weren't for Scott Hairston." <laughs> There's one other thing about Scott Hairston on the Mets, which is just, which is that he managed to to hit for the cycle one time. So he's also done that. It's just he's done a lot of things for someone who has not played that much baseball and is also not that good at baseball. Like the. There's only been 10 Mets to hit for the cycle. There have only been seven Padres to home run, three straight at-bats, and, and somehow Scott Hairston's in that club. Oh, I'll give, I'll give one final selling point for Scott Hairston, and then we can move on. Scott Hairston hit what might have been the most famous home run in Padres history if it were not for the, the ensuing incidents after. In the 2007 NL West game 163. So the Padres-Rockies game, many people might remember this game for the Matt Holiday did not touch home game. Because he was thrown out at the plate, scoring the game-winning run. Because he did not touch home plate, but they incorrectly called him safe. Scott Hairston hit the go-ahead two-run home run for the Padres in the inning before, and so it was. It may have been the you know the the hit that sent the Padres into the playoffs and one of the most famous hits in Padres history. But it has been lost to time because Matt Holliday had to go ahead and score. He hit a number of very clutch home runs. And so the fact that he did that despite only hitting 100 career home runs is, is also something kind of special.
2: And you know what? If the Padres had ended up winning that game, Scott Harrison could have gotten an early start because in the NLDS, the Padres would have taken on the Phillies.
1: Exactly. Could have really shown off as his next prowess.
2: So should we vote? I'm in favor. I'm also in favor. There it is. Our first member. Ah, well, I guess our second member of the Toy Cannon Canon, because, of course, Jimmy Wynn has got to
1: be our founding charter member. Scott Hairston, the inaugural class. Decree. All right, let's, see, let's see if we can continue to build the inaugural class, Vic. At first base, Luke Easter, who was bothered by a
0: trick knee last season, is back in form.
2: I'll say this. You could make a podcast on your own about the stars of the Negro League that deserve recognition. We have to remember is like as soon as baseball was integrated in the late 40s and early 50s, a flood of talent came in, a flood of guys that immediately impacted the game and were immediately awesome. So you have to keep in mind that you gotta be suspicious of anyone who tries to discount any accomplishments in the Negro League. We're gonna talk about Luke Easter. A lot of people might not get to celebrate Easter this year because of this whole coronavirus pandemic. I'll tell you we're gonna celebrate Easter right now. Right on time. Let's start off with this. If you just saw Luke Easter walking down the street, he would immediately make an impression on you. Men was six foot four, two hundred and forty pounds. Like you're talking about like Willie McCovey but like you know add on like 40 pounds or something like that this guy was like Jim Tomey pretty much
1: but this is also in like the 40s when people were typically smaller
2: I think if you look him up on baseball reference the photo is going to he's gonna have a pretty stern look on his face he's gonna look kind of mean that kind of belies the kind of person he was sure he was a determined competitor but you know despite the number of hardships that he faced he was a jovial fun-loving kind of guy he loved the game he loved his fans fans loved him back, especially the kids. He loved nice food and fancy suits and cards. He had this sleek black Buick that he would have a teammate drive him around in acting like a chauffeur because he wanted to seem like a big shot. But I'll tell you this, Luke Easter already was a big shot. In fact, there might not be a more apt descriptor of Luke Easter than big shot. People called his home runs. You know what they called his home runs? Easter eggs. Easter eggs, baby. <laughs> and he had a lot of them. A few pretty important Easter eggs. Something that you should remember. Something you should keep in mind. Luke Easter was born in 1915. Like a lot of players of the day, birth year was was kind of in dispute. At different times, he claimed that he was born in 1921. Um, especially when he was like getting signed into the majors, he tried to claim that he was a little younger than he actually was. At times he tried to claim that he was born in 1913 or 1914. At one point after his retirement, the, the president of one of the minor league teams he played for said that he would give him $10 for every year that he'd been alive. So he's like, I was born in 1911. <laughs> so I got $520. He said, my age is 52, but my baseball age is 42. He said that, but I don't believe it for a second. I really don't think that at any point in his career, he was younger than the number of his age. First got into organized ball for the St. Louis Titanium Giants. He actually played on that team with Sam the Jet Jethro, who you might know, he's a Negro League legend. He was one of the fastest players ever to play the game of baseball. That's why they called him the Jet. But in in 1941, while playing for these guys, he was in Sam Jethro's car with a few other teammates, and they got into a pretty bad car crash. And Luke Easter fractured his leg. You know, he came away with a broken ankle. And I'm sure they didn't get the greatest medical treatment. So this is the first real major injury for Luke Easter. And that ankle injury was actually the cause of his discharge from the Army in World War II. The war in general kind of put his baseball plans on hold until 1945. By this time, Luke Easter is 30 years old. And he
1: hasn't really played baseball yet. And he hasn't really played
2: a whole lot of baseball. Exactly. He's already had you know, a major injury. The Titanium Giants, they're a born-snoring team. They played other Negro League teams. And really what's surprising is by this point, he's not playing in the Negro Leagues. In fact, yeah. in 1946, the year after you know, the war ends, he, he starts playing for another team called the Cincinnati Crescents. Like so like Easter,
1: baseball reference has stats for almost every team. And Luke Easter doesn't even have stats until his 1947 season. Like, missed it at all. So, so, where was this guy? In
2: In his 1946 season, he's in Cincinnati. He's already made an impression on the people that he's played with, but he just absolutely went off in (laughs) Cincinnati. The fans loved him. And you would too if your 6'4 first baseman outfielder hit 4'15 with 152 RBIs. <laughs> it's also been claimed by some people that he hit 74 home runs in this season. That hasn't been substantiated, but the sporting news did report a couple years later that he hit 4'15 with 152 RBIs. And it was that monster performance that finally did land him in the Negro League. So this year that Jackie Robinson and and Larry Doby are integrating the game or integrating the National and American League, Luke Easter finally gets his chance to break in to the Negro Leagues. He gets to play for, for the Homestead Graves. So to lure him away, they paid him 1,100 bucks. That's a lot of money. He was already immediately one of the highest paid players in the league. Obviously, he had to earn it. And earn it he did. You know, he was pretty good in 1947. From some of the stats that I could find, he had like a 115 OPS plus. 1948 was was really the year that he took off. Luke Easter in 1948, he hit well over 300. Some stats you could find say he hit 311. Some say he hit as high as 363. On-base percentage over 400. He slugged 528. He had an OPS plus of 180 in 1948 for the Homestead Grays. His teammate was actually Buck Leonard. Bill James would later say Buck Leonard and Luke Easter, even though he only played two years, were one and two in terms of the best first baseman to come out of the Negro leagues. Getting past the stats. In these years with the Homestead Grays, I believe in 1948, Luke Easter did something even more important against the New York Cubans at the famed Polo Grounds. Luke Easter strides to the plate. He hit a line drive to straightaway center field. If you've seen the Polo Grounds, you know how massive it is. All the way to straightaway center field, a line drive that kept on rising and hit the middle of the bleachers. Like, didn't just sneak out, hit the middle of the bleachers in the polo grounds in straightaway center field. Luke Easter was the first man to accomplish this in an organized game. Only three people did it after him. Center field is 475 feet from home plate. The famed catch by Willie Mays in the '54 World Series—he doesn't even go all the way to straightaway center field. Like there's still like this alleyway that's that's cut out in center field, and that's how far Luke Easter hit the ball about halfway up the bleachers. You know, well over 500 feet. That's just one of a few iconic home runs. In 1948, he leads the Grays to the Negro League World Series. They win the Negro League World Series. They win that series four games to one. So he beats a young man, a rookie by the name of Willie Mays and the Birmingham Black Barons. Bill Veck, one of the great figures in all of baseball history, finally signs a very deserving Luke Easter to a major league contract by 1949. You know, he'd signed Larry Doby, he'd signed Satchel Page, and he signs Luke Easter. The Indians <coughs> already have, you know, an all-star first baseman. So he goes to the minors so he goes to to play for the san diego padres he had an on-field collision in the spring that injured his knee and then he had that kneecap broken by a pitch but everyone wanted to see luke easter put on a show clubs were were selling standing room only tickets When the Padres were visiting them, there was one three-game set in Los Angeles where Luke Easter hit six home runs in the three-game series. There were fights that broke out because fans were like jockeying for position, trying to watch him hit. This guy was like the original Mark McGuire in the sense that people came out and they got their money's worth if they just watched him take batting practice. Just watching him take batting practice was a sight to behold. Um, Even so... Just like any other African-American player of the area had to deal with plenty of racial discrimination. It's, it's even been said that hit by pitch that broke his knee was intentional, was thrown at him on purpose. For his first full year in MLB, he led the league in hit by pitches. So he faced his fair share of racial discrimination. He knew that he could earn everyone's respect just by doing his job. He pretty much said everywhere that he went, hey, If I hit, the people will like me. And so it came to pass pretty much everywhere he went. Uh, There was a game against Portland, pitcher named Adliska. He threw at him over and over again in one at-bat. There were two pitches that even sailed over his head and behind him. After that at-bat, what did Luke Easter do? He doesn't do anything except come right to the plate and hit a 450-foot jack to dead center. It's been said that that narrowly missed Liska's head on the way out. This dude was like the draw of minor league baseball. Eventually, the, the knee caught up to him. You know, he had to get surgery. But even just six weeks after that surgery, you know, he was still hobbled. He was called up to the Indians because people just wanted to see him play. When he left the Padres, got called up to the Indians, it was, it was estimated that the loss of him alone cost them – Two hundred thousand dollars in revenue. Like I said, this is nineteen forty nine. So at this point, he's yeah, thirty four he years old. He comes up to the Indians, and in nineteen forty nine, he didn't hit a single home run in the twenty one games he played. He wasn't very good, and you know, everyone was like, "Oh, ho, ho. so I mean, so this oh, is Luke Easter, you know." Um, he also
1: been drilled in the knee and had to get
2: surgery. Exactly, and, he came back six you know, weeks after getting surgery. He was also playing a whole half season and playing a fantastic half season. His numbers in San Diego on that broken knee. His slash line was 363, 467, 22. So he OPS 1181. He, I mean, he, he hit 25 home runs in 80 games.
1: I mean, uh, the PCL has always been hitter friendly, but that's especially hitter friendly.
2: He walked twice as much as he struck out. He had 92 RBIs over 80 games. He's 33 at this point. But still, people are stupid. So this one month or this like 20-game period that he plays in Cleveland, Four News called him the most booed player in Cleveland history. Obviously, racism played a lot into that. You know, Trispeaker was like the, the guy came up under the worst conditions. Easter said all the while, if I hit, they'll like me. If I don't hit, I don't deserve to be in the lineup. 1950 rolls around. And he's competing for the starting first base job with Mickey Vernon, seven-time All-Star in his career. By this point, he had already gone two All-Star games. But, of course, Luke Easter is is the man. That spring, he batted in 14 runs. He hit 333, And actually, the, the most memorable thing that he did that spring training was actually an out that he created. He hit a screamer right back to the pitcher. The pitcher got it. he stuck his glove out and caught it, but it dragged him like five, six feet back, like it dragged, it took him off of the mound and onto his back. <laughs> he got knocked off That's his feet. straight
1: out of a cartoon.
2: That's just how hard that Luke Easter hit the ball. As he started to hit, the booing also subsided. And then goes three-year stretch where Luke Easter was absolutely fantastic, from 1950 to 1952. He was one of a kind. This was his age, 34, age 35, and 36-year seasons. And so he averaged like 132 games a year, which isn't the worst. Over that time, he slashed 271, 349, 493. You know, he had a a 128 OPS. And over these three years – He hit 86 home runs. He pretty much averaged 30 home runs a year for these three years. He averaged 102 RBIs over those years. He was a monster. In 1951, he was injured early. You know, he tore a tendon in his left knee. He missed 26 games, but he still managed in that short span, 27 home runs and 103 RBIs, coming back from tearing a tendon in his left knee. So his right knee is the one that got hit. Now he's torn stuff in his left knee, and he's still, even in a partial season, doing insane. Probably the best year of all those was 1952, was when he was 36. He hit 31 home runs. He had 97 RBIs. He slugged 513. It was his best slugging percentage of any full year in the majors. His OPS plus was 141 that year. 1952 was the only year that he received MVP votes. The stats are one thing, but really the important part is the legend of Luke Easter. On June 23rd, 1950, he smacks a 477-foot home run into the second deck in right field of Municipal Stadium. It's said to be the longest ball ever hit at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. By this point at the end of 1950, he's fully enmeshed in Cleveland as the man, a guy that just Hits monster home runs. This is the toy cannon cannon. We love Jimmy Wynn because he was 5'8". Luke Easter was just as awesome, but not because he was a toy cannon. He was a full-on howitzer. Every season of winter ball that he played, he led the league in home runs. He was named MVP in 48-49 when he batted 402 and led his team to the championship. He even led the Puerto Rican League in home runs at the age of 41. This guy just kept playing. His story doesn't even stop after he's with the Indians. He goes up and he plays minor league ball up at Buffalo. The center field fence was 400 feet away from home plate. The scoreboard in center field was 60 feet high. Twice in one year, Luke Easter hit home runs that went to away center field over the 60 feet tall scoreboard. One of them went across the street and crashed into this old lady's window who said afterwards that the only thing she thought was possible immediately after that was that someone had just dropped an atomic bomb in her home. If you look at, at his minor league stats, when he's 39, he's still hitting 30 home runs for Charleston in A.
1: One of the most compelling things here is that despite the fact that he didn't really start playing organized baseball until he was in his 30s, he ended up having almost a 20-year career in organized baseball.
2: So playing in Buffalo, if, this is when he's if, in his 40s. Starting in 1956, he hit 35 home runs and 40. Then 38, so from 39 to 42, still high-level professional baseball. He's slugging 545 with an OPS of 953. Slugging 578, an OPS over 1,000. 562 slugging percentage, 956 OPS. A 600 slugging percentage at age 42. It's, and
1: it's just insane. And, and the part of the fact, the thing that makes him so cool, is, is that it is kind of that legend of the natural. Like he just came out of nowhere, and and in, in modern baseball, it's like you, you have scouting, you have pipelines, you have like you know who's going to be taken in the first round of the draft when these guys are like 16. People don't come out of nowhere. If you were like a guy who like wasn't paying that much attention to the Negro Leagues or was like not that huge a baseball fan, and you just went to a game, you would show up, and you would see this guy who was six foot four, two forty. Getting 500-foot home runs, and he literally came out of nowhere.
2: Everywhere he went, fans absolutely adored him. Players that he played with and the players that got to saw him play. Frank Robinson said, I was amazed by his strength and power. A guy named Del Baker said, I've seen a lot of powerful hitters in my time, but for sheer ability to knock a ball great distances, I've never seen anybody better than Easter, and I'm not accepting Babe Ruth.
1: In modern baseball, the mythos of the home run has kind of disappeared now that everyone and their mother can hit 20 home runs. But this is why people like home runs, and this is why people like home run hitters, because of Luke Easter.
2: But no one knew Luke Easter's talent quite as much as the man himself. One time a fan walked up to him and he said, you know, Mr. Easter, I had the privilege of seeing your longest home run in person. Easter looked at him dead serious and said, well, if it came down, it wasn't my
1: longest. I think that quote guarantees his induction. I mean he has my vote for sure.
0: I knew nothing about this coming into it.
1: You know, it just it's it's so interesting because really it just the idea of a baseball player coming out of nowhere, it is the natural.
0: And then just
2: to to mash as much as he did through his mid to late thirties and forties. He was an old guy. And like he said, my baseball age is 10 years younger than my real age. No, it wasn't. He broke his ankle in a car crash. He served in the army like he worked at titanium and chemical plants. He bore the brunt of late 40s, early 50s racism and broke one of his knees and tore a tendon in the other one and played on it all the while. And also, like, your legs don't really hold up too long if you're a 6'4", 240-pound man. I don't have too much experience as one. But I'm sure that it's kind of a tough time for your joints, especially if they get injured and you're 6'4", 240. And yet, all the while, he just crushed home runs.
1: Well, Luke Easter has earned his spot in the cannon. With two outs, Hank Aaron is the next batter. McLean, in dazzling form, also places a third strike past Aaron for the third
0: out. That was a lovely Easter surprise, but my guy's a little different. Luke Easter, you know, late bloomer. As Vic was saying, my uh, special player, Mr. Danny McLean, was really a young phenom. And his whole life and career really seems like it's from a movie. And he was a, the typical superstar shortstop and pitcher at his high school. And he was eventually signed out of high school to the Chicago White Sox in 1962. And at this point, he's only 18 years old. And in his first minor league game, he throws a no-hitter with 16 strikeouts. Oh, fresh out of high school. I've never seen an 18-year-old throw a no-hitter in the minors. And he finished that season with a ERA about sub-three. In those days, you can only play um, like one year of service. So he, after that, they've subject to a draft. And that's how he made it to the Tigers organization.
1: So basically, you could play a year in the minor leagues, and then anyone could have you?
0: Thing was like the White Sox like didn't protect
2: him off waivers like they <laughs> this teenager came up and threw a no hitter for them
1: yeah they were like are like what we ah!
0: don't
1: <laughs> this is why teams are cursed because th- that's that's what they do
0: he makes up to the majors as a nineteen year old and he has an MLB debut and he pitches a complete game allowing run run also hitting a solo home run his only home run in his career. And all of this is against the Chicago White Sox. A little revenge game for, uh,
2: desserts. for
0: Mr. McLean. Yeah. And he's still only 19.
2: Only six teenage pitchers have ever hit a major league home run. And Denny McLean
0: did it in one of his first ever at bats. Talk about that? arms that hammer. <laughs> <laughs> this is where it really starts to get interesting for, uh, for Denny. In his next few years, 64 to 67, he plays with the Tigers. He was known for his, his letter high fastball. And he would really challenge batters, and he would pitch with his hat brim really low, and he would have to lean back in order to see the catcher's signs uh, to see what pitch was coming in. And then, after all that, comes the historic 1968 season.
2: This is like the one thing that like, everyone knows him for, but it's, it's so criminal.
0: McClellan is kind of a character. You know. He's young, he's <laughs> kind of reckless, he's very cocky, and he's very good. The Tigers started off very hot in the 1968 season, going 9-1. And McLean comes out and criticizes Tiger fans and says, you know, they only cheer for us when we win, like they're front-running fans. And the problem is the Tigers didn't stop winning. And they eventually clinched the pennant with 103 wins. Now here is the historic line of Mr. McLean: Last pitcher to ever have 30 wins in a season. He finished with 31 wins, 6 losses, coming along with 28 complete games, with an ERA of 1.96, a whip of .9. In all of this, and 336 innings of work. Wow. Which oh. averages about to a little over eight innings per start. The
2: three years before that, he threw an average of, of like 240 innings. I mean, that's just
1: absolutely ridiculous. The thing is, he wasn't like a superstar. Like, he has like a like sub-4 ERAs, but not like incredible ERAs. And then all of a sudden, he goes out and drops a 1.96. And and so, you know, it must have been pretty shocking, you know, to kind of have that Change of of tune. He's twenty four at this point, so well, like, that's the thing. What a promising career this this guy
0: has. So after that season, he wins the All Young and the MVP award, both unanimous. And in nineteen sixty eight, it's the only year where a pitcher won both MVPs.
2: Bob Gibson. So that's the one one two year.
0: Yes, Bob Gibson. And in fact, the two pitchers to face off in that World Series, um, which the Tigers would win in seven games. McLean, he was an organ player, he grew up playing the organ. And he spent his off season flying himself around the world, playing the organ and celebrating his great success. So here's this young 24, 25 year old coming off one of the best seasons, MLB will
1: history. And now it's just flying around the world and playing the organ. I mean, imagine being uh, like the the athlete on top of the world also being really passionate about like organ playing. And here you have young superstar pitcher and also, young superstar organist Denny McLean, and that he was the—you know—he everybody wanted to be this guy with the organ.
2: Yeah, yeah actually, and, and he played in the same band as Bob Gibson. <laughs>
1: what? Like they played. They played
2: together, and he had said, or he, like you he said earlier in the, like in the World Series, he are talking about his teammate Mickey Lolich, who like clinch the world series for them in game seven he's like i wouldn't you trade one mickey lolich for 12 bob gibsons just straight up disrespecting a guy who got a 1-1-2 era and then he has to go play in the same band as him <laughs>
1: band <is in. laughs>
2: where's the eagles type documentary on that
0: <laughs> is yeah. there any
1: other baseball players in that band or are they just hanging out i'm not sure what be did bob gibson play i guess i got lots of questions about will
0: bob, G- bob gibson was a
1: guitarist August, say, See, that, but you want that, that's <coughs> cool. It's like a top of the world. I'm a guitarist. Oregon is just bizarre.
0: And maybe Oregon was the thing back then. Exactly. So after his, his world tour on his plane, he actually used his pilot skills in the next season. So 1969, another great season, started off very strong. And he was nominated to the All-Star Game. So the All-Star Game was supposed to be played on the 22nd. And McLean had a appointment on the 23rd. However, there was a weather delay and the All-Star Game got moved to the 23rd the same day as his dentist appointment. So what does he do? He goes to the dentist appointment and then flies himself from Chicago to Washington, D.C. for the game that he's supposed to start because he's the best pitcher in the league. He's supposed to start this game. He gets there during the second inning and he goes and he enters in the fourth inning, but the AL's already done seven runs. So it's kind of useless at this point. He just wants to pitch. <laughs> Imagine you're the
2: manager and your starting pitcher is getting a root canal. <laughs> 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 like oh like,
1: where, where's Denny oh he's at the office. hundreds of miles
2: away <laughs> yeah he's he's in the dentist's office oh go get him he's in the dentist's office in Chicago
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then he flew himself which is absolutely ridiculous <laughs> he like, like <laughs> he had to get on some kind of drugs I'm not really sure I guess they probably didn't oh yeah. Him. Medicine. You get.
1: You always get, like, at the trade deadline, you get, like, the, the players, and it's like, oh, like, is he going to make it to the game in time? Like, oh, when's this player going to arrive? Because we just traded for him. Denny McLean is the ultimate solution to this. The players just fly themselves to the team. They'll be there by the seventh inning. It's beautiful.
0: <laughs> so then that season comes to an end. Uh, another great season. 24 wins, 23 complete games. And here I have 2.8, a whip of 1.09. But then award season comes along, and Denny McClain is not alone. He ties for the AL Cy Young with Mike Cuellar, Baltimore Orioles great. And that forces the MLB to change the voting system to today's voting system
1: of having first place,
0: second place, and third place votes.
1: Mike Quayar's Cy Young case is very shaky at best. He put up like half of the war that McLean did.
0: Yeah, that's definitely a vote of you're an awesome pitcher and your team won the pennant. I think it's also like no one really liked McLean. Like he was kind of a... <laughs> He was kind of a jerk.
1: <laughs> I, just, I mean, that's Ryan that's the was, great moral of this story. Here is we have we have Luke Easter that everybody loved Luke Easter, and he was on top of the world when he was old. And we've got Denny McLean who everybody hated, who was on top of the world when he was young.
2: Denny McLean started eighty-two games over these over those two years. Oh my god,
1: Holy, that's a quarter of his team's games. So they must have not had a five-man rotation.
0: 51 complete games over that span too (laughs) over 660 innings pitch
2: and his era plus was was 142 like this is when pitchers are at their best well maybe not 69 because they changed things after 68 but like even still in in 1968 he had an era plus of 154 in the year where everyone pitched well
0: he's he's still only 25 which is (laughs) Like, that's insane. Back-to-back Cy Youngs and MVP.
1: And we're especially desensitized to this because players come up into the majors now and they're awesome. Back in these days, you usually, like, people would not hit their stride until they were, like, 30.
0: He's obviously the best pitcher in the game at this point, right? And then he gets all these talk show appearances and endorsements. But he has an insanely huge drinking problem. He was known to down 24 bottles of Pepsi-Cola a day, which actually (laughs) led to a sponsorship and an insane paycheck, <laughs> <laughs> which went to a sponsorship of, I think it was 15000 and also free Pepsi Cola. So not only is he, like, says so so with tacky on the field, but he's also catching the attention of people off the field, and most notably, the attention of the police. 1970, before the season starts, Sports Illustrated publishes an article with McLean on the cover, and the headline says, "Danny McLean and the Mob. Baseball's biggest scandal. And throughout this article, it details his alleged relations with the Syrian mob and also accused him of setting up a sports gambling bookkeeping operation with no other than a PepsiCo representative. <laughs> the soda people. McLean suffered a foot injury in his 67 season. And the article alleges that this foot injury is actually from some gang violence. And not from McLean actually hurting himself, and it actually affected his whole 67 season. He only pitched 235 innings. Which for McLean, you know, that's nothing. The crazy thing about this article is that McLean denies everything, although he does admit to investing in the bookkeeping, not running it. But all the accusations of the article were made by other criminals. So the validity of all this is kind of up in the air. So the commissioner has a tough, like, tough job here. We to do what to do with McLean. He probably hates him because he's a character, but he's also one of the best players in baseball. So then the season comes along, and McLean is suspended for the first three months of the season. So he returns. It's about halfway through the year. And then he gets suspended again. This time, he claims it was a prank, but he dumped buckets of water on Detroit sports writers and then was suspended for seven games because of that. He's I mean, he the biggest writer?
1: star in the sport right now. Like he is like 24 yes. years old, back-to-back Cy Young, MVP. With all his endorsements and everything.
2: And he's flying late to all-star games. He's supposed to start dumping buckets
0: of water on sports writers and getting his feet broken by the Syrian mob. So he's suspended for the water dumping and then suspended again for carrying a gun on the team flight. (laughs) I guess he thought he was on his own plane or something, so that's what he does. So his 1970 season was a little short, only 91 innings, and he was very suddenly out of money because although he made a lot of money, he spent it very fast. And he entrusted a lot of his baseball income to one of his lawyers who eventually fled to Japan. And no one knows if the lawyer stole the money or he just mishandled the money
2: and he doesn't even have to spend any money on pepsi <laughs>
0: he has free pepsi at this or
2: point
0: And <laughs> that. so after this he loses his money and he's like oh let me get some cash really quickly so he uh, teams up with his friend and he plans out a nude baseball model calendar to make some money on the side
1: <laughs> <laughs> <I> <laughs> How mean, he's this- just the greatest character ever
0: I know. He has so many ideas. He's very attracted to any kind of money. The calendar does not work. It's very ineffective. What? I know. I want to see a nude so who
2: would, new would be the headliners of the 2019 we really need to make some money baseball nude calendar?
1: Derek Dietrich.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh,
0: he'd be a good pick, too. He has
1: not made a lot of money in his career, and I could see him being a big spender.
0: Maybe Jose Altuve will pose about a jersey for it. We'll <laughs> see the wire.
2: Oh, but then we then we'd see his unfinished tattoo. Oh no,
0: uh, no. <laughs> that'd be terrible. This 97 season really derails his career. Like I mean, back to back Cy Youngs, and now this. And so he's then traded after the season to the Washington Senators. And during the 1971 season with the Senators, they used a five-minute rotation, which McClain hated because he wanted the ball, and he fought a lot with the Senators' manager. Was oh, his no manager other...
2: must have not known anything about baseball.
0: He was a complete doof, some guy named Ted Williams. <laughs> uh, so they fought the whole entire year. The thing is, McLean couldn't pitch anymore. His arm was so sore and so worn down, he could not throw his fastball, which led him to lead in the league with 22 losses in 1971.
1: It's one of those things where, you know, there's some black ink on a baseball page that's negative, and this is one of those you don't obviously want to lead the league in, in losses, but it's interesting, you see the black ink going down for wins, and the black ink going down for innings pitched, and then all of a sudden it just shifts. And he still has the black ink, so if you look quickly, you might be like, oh, he's still awesome. And then you realize that it's 22 losses.
0: <laughs> and his arm is basically dead. It's an actually a little fun fact. His last appearance was against the Cincinnati Reds, and what's the last batter that McLean ever faced was no other than the fellow gambling man, Pete Rose wow wow it's really like a movie script is how everything just
1: connects to itself so. you know yeah. you know who who denny McLean is it took me a second because i was like i feel like i've heard of this story he's matt harvey obviously matt harvey was not as good as, as denny mcclain was at his peak but matt harvey was like the king of new york city i mean he was one of the best pitchers in baseball if not the best pitcher in baseball and all of a sudden, his arm died. He was at, caught at clubs. And at least Denny McLean did to
2: get to the game that he was late to. Matt Harvey just said, ah, eh, whatever. I'm not going to show up. And now he's, he's 29 only, and he's out of the league. Like you're saying about how like, his career connects at the end. Not only does he end his career against Pete Rose, but his debut is, a, is like a complete game, you know, where he gives up one run. His last game, he doesn't even get an out. <laughs> he, gets the, he gets the big old sideways eight for his ERA on the day. He, he gives up two runs. Not get, he doesn't get a
0: single out. Yeah, it's kind of like a, a Jeremy Guthrie ending to his career. <laughs> oh,
1: poor Jeremy Guthrie. <laughs> that, 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 that was one of the saddest ways to go out. And yeah. sad for Denny McClain as well. But Matt Harvey, 30 years old, potentially out of baseball. I'm telling you, it's there.
0: So baseball's over. And now McClain brings out his business knowledge again. But unfortunately, he also returned to bookkeeping and hustling money on golf courses. And in addition, here comes the plane again. He was paid $160,000 to smuggle a wanted felon out of the country with his plane.
1: What a guy. What? I mean, why didn't he go back to the organ? He was good at the organ. He should have done that. Oh, I think he played organ all throughout this time. I imagine <laughs> you can't just give up your love for the organ. Exactly. No, no. One does not take their love for the organ lightly.
0: So now it's 1984, and the U.S. Justice Department is like, okay, you know, this guy's kind of fishy. Let's ask his associates what's going on, what's he, what's he dealing and everything. And so they snitch on McLean, and he's sentenced to 23 years of prison on charges of racketeering, embezzlement, and drug trafficking. He's in jail for three years, and then the, there's an appeal, and the court uh, threw out the verdict, on procedural grounds, and they set McLean free. Only after three years, of what was intended to be a 23-year sentence. So now McLean's free again, back on his feet. He's hosting a radio show. He's even a model for Haynes Underwear. And at this point, he's making about 400,000 a year. He's a
1: model. <laughs> <laughs> this man knows how to make money. But then in
0: 1993, he figured that 400,000 a year was not enough. He wanted to become a part owner of a meatpacking firm. With some of his friends.
2: Oh, what? Uh, he didn't get enough meatpacking done when he was on like underwear. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I guess not, but a, a month after the, after the purchase of this meatpacking industry, mysteriously, $3 million was taken from the company's pension fund.
1: And he's never done anything sketchy before in his
0: life. Exactly. <laughs> and the company eventually goes bankrupt. And in 1996, he was charged again for embezzlement, money laundering, mail fraud and conspiracy of stealing 2.5 million of the pension fund. This then leads to seven Jimmy. years of prison and he was released in 2003. And then he finishes his autobiography, which is titled, I told you I wasn't perfect. What a great ending to the movie. He's still alive today. He's 76 and he wasn't,
1: old. And he wasn't perfect because he only threw a no hitter.
0: And the crazy thing is in the Ted Williams season, he like, really lost his love for baseball. And he started drinking a lot more Pepsi. So more like, Pepsi
2: than a more case. More Pepsi.
0: Today? I think it was a case a day, but like he kept it up, and it just wouldn't work out. That's so hard to do. Now he he's like three hundred pounds. I'm pretty sure. Through
2: all of this, like he's getting Hanes sponsorships. Like he's throwing he's, out first pitches. He's
1: just the coolest guy ever. That's cl- he's now just. He's still so making cool. late
2: night appearances. Like he's uh, he's probably getting gigs on the organs.
1: I mean just his baseball performance alone is enough to get him inducted. The 30 wins, it's just, it's all interesting. The no-hitter in his first professional start, but the fact that his off the field story is more the Pepsi in a band with Bob Gibson flying to the All-Star game, we want to talk about the crime. Like he's got there's like the three sides of Denny McLean.
2: One thing I love are like great performances in all-star games because like you know you can't really mail in an MLB all-star game and stuff like that and Denny McClain's 1966 all-star game is is phenomenal this is 1966 like this two years before his insane two-year run and he's the starter for the AL he he pitches the first three innings and he puts all nine batters down in order with only twenty-eight pitches, and the the National League lineup that he has to face is Willie Mays, Roberto Clemente, Hank Aaron, Willie McCovey, Ron Santo, Joe Torre, and Jim LaFever, Leo Cardenas, and Kurt Flood. Put all of them down in order. He struck three of them out. That's when he's twenty-two years old. I guess that's why <laughs> that's why. <laughs> Was like I've already done my shit in the All Star Game. <laughs> I already put down Mays, Clemente, McCovey, <laughs> Aaron, <laughs> Santo, Tori.
1: I think there's no way that he does not get inducted.
2: He's got my vote all the way, Danny. Mc- the real thing I love about Danny McLean is that you know you think of him, and or initially, like you know, when you get to know him as a baseball fan, like you know him as a name in baseball history, like a like a Johnny Vandermeer. Like, that kind of person who you know for, like, just, like, one one record. Like, oh, you know, Denny McLean, the last 30-game yep. winner. But then there's all this other shit. The crime, the piloting, the organ. The,
1: <laughs> the Pepsi. Pepsi. The underwear modeling. I think, looking back at the inaugural class of the toy cannon cannons, it's such a great class because it, it, it's it's got so many different spectrums. We have a guy who didn't play professional baseball until he was in his thirties and then played forever and was just basically a myth.
2: the modern day john henry
1: we have we have a, a a pitcher who is just one of the the greatest of all time for a very short stretch on top of the world and then has one of the most interesting off the field downfall, whatever, and then we have a utility outfielder who really just beat the shit out of two teams and did <laughs> nothing else with his career. And that is really the core of this project is that there are so many different reasons that sports are special.
2: There are some connections here. Do you want to hear some of the connections? I'd love to hear a connection. Okay, so first off, Sam Harrison.
1: Negro League legend, probably. League, uh,
2: Sam Harrison was, was uh, Scott Harrison's grandfather playing in the Negro League's at the same time as Luke Easter's short run. With Luke Easter and Danny McLean, first off, Danny McClain is the son-in-law of Lou Boudreaux, who was Luke Easter's manager, but the real one here, Danny McLean, born on March 29th, just celebrated a birthday a couple days ago, and Luke Easter died on March 29th, just 35 years after Danny McClain was born. So, Danny McClain's out of the league. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Crazy. Oh yeah, Danny McClain born on the same day that Luke Easter was murdered. And Luke Easter murdered defending a sackload of cash from being stolen.
1: <laughs> They're really birds of a feather that way. A great inaugural class.
2: A great pilot, if you will. Exactly. All right. Well, it's right. Been a pleasure. See you next time on episode two of the Toy Cannon Cannon. Who will be the next to enter the cannon?